0: but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at
1: TravelWyoming.com. How is that for, is, is that volume
2: okay?
3: Yep, volume's great. Cool. Okay, so... This is
2: Ben Cosgrove, a touring musician who, like most musicians during the pandemic, is not actually doing any touring. He's speaking here with producer Taylor Quimby. I'm sorry because you've got a good ensemble, but if you can take off that
3: vest, it's one of those feechy, <sighs> yes, vests. Yes, actually, that makes a lot of.
2: I, I that actually occurred to me right
1: before I hopped down, and I, it was too comfortable to. That's
2: how it goes. <closely> <laughs> On the screen, you could see Ben is dressed in what I'm going to call pandemic casual, shaggy hair, maybe a little shaggier than usual. In front of him, a microphone, and behind him, on a shelf, a long row of thin brown rectangles.
3: What is that behind you? Are those files? The brown, the brown row?
1: Actually, that those are the guts of a piano. They're, uh, oh really? The, uh, my uh, grandmother's piano was destroyed in a flood uh, last year, oh, wow. um, and it was like like this old thing. It was like the first piano I ever played, um, and so I was able to rescue this piece, which is all of the hammers and all of the weapons. uh, but yeah, conversation piece.
3: Do you remember any of this stuff from when you were really, really little? Oh man. Uh, yeah. Let me hear it. Let me, let me,
1: I wrote this now. was seven. It's, it's called waves.
2: Lot of music about the outdoors and our relationship to it. But it's genres like classical and new age and ambient that can sometimes feel almost authorless, as if the absence of vocals allow us to hear instrumental music as a representation of the natural world.
1: I've always tried treating the rest of the world as sort of like a writing prompt and like, you know, without using words or images, like, how can you sort of suggest what this looks and feels like? Yeah. Uh, And I don't know if I would have had the language to say that that's what I was doing even back then, but something about that felt like waves to me. And now I think I would come at it with more of a, like, oh, what is it about a wave? And like, why would you write about waves?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Who are you, wave? Um, Who is, who is wave? (laughs) Ben started playing music when he was four. And because he's loved the outdoors as long as he's loved playing music, he has made a career out of representing place through song. He doesn't always focus on so called wilderness, but it happens a lot.
1: This is, I, re- I had an artist residency since we were talking about these at um, Isle Royal National Park, the least visited national park in the lower 48 states. Really? It was, I mean, it was a tremendous experience.
2: He's it's done it by recording and including natural sounds in his music by naming songs, things like Pine, Meltwater, or Wind Falling from a Higher Place. And he's done it by telling stories. Island, you
1: know, Without electricity or plumbing or, or, mm-hmm. or the whole thing, and it, you're really and you're surrounded by, you know, this big, like the biggest freshwater lake in this hemisphere anyway. Mm-hmm. Um...
2: But over the years, as Ben's career and music have developed, he started to question the kind of stories he's telling. He started to feel troubled.
1: I wasn't necessarily saying things I didn't believe, but I was, you know, ignoring most of the landscape by only really focusing on, you know, the places that didn't have people in them.
2: This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Today, how ideas about wilderness can inspire, but also what they might obscure. There is nothing
1: natural about the concept of wilderness. It is entirely a creation of the culture that holds it dear, a product of the very history it seeks to deny.
2: Composer and traveling musician Ben Cosgrove talks about the relationship between nature and music and the idea that changed the way he looks at the world around him and changed his work about the world. Producer Taylor Quimby has
3: the story. There's a song I used to love when I was a kid by the pianist George Winston. It's called Night, Part 1, Snow. I can actually remember listening with my nose pressed to a cold window pane, snow falling so hard outside it looked like TV static, The song captured something I felt but couldn't have described then, a delicate beauty, but also this foreboding feeling of being closed in, buried by a powerful nor'easter. George Winston has a lot of albums like this. It's a style he calls rural folk piano. They focus on seasons or landscapes. There's autumn, summer, forest, plains each album featuring a lush nature photo on the cover, something you'd find on a YouTube meditation video or something. This kind of music is just one of the varieties that Ben Cosgrove identifies in his unofficial taxonomy of music about landscape.
1: They're like the people who describe a natural situation with sound. So like, like Wagner has this thing at the beginning of the ring cycle where for entire minutes you just hear this one, you know, like rippling chord. It's supposed to evoke, like, the Rhine River.
3: Instrumental music about landscape can be literal and specific, like this part of the ring cycle. Or it could be abstract, like a recent composition by contemporary composer John Luther Adams.
1: He won the Pulitzer Prize a few years ago for this piece called Become Ocean. It sort of just feels like you're entering this thing that um, it's, it's, like, very like long and dense and lush. And the impression you get is that it's just sort of something that existed before you got there and will keep going after you leave. And you just sort of get to wander around inside of it for the time you're there.
3: That's cool. There's also classical music that includes recordings of birdsong, for example, or music that uses data about the natural world. Population numbers, climate statistics, or topographical maps— and translates them into sound. Throughout his life, Ben has dabbled in many, if not all, of these methods. But the style and focus he's landed on over the course of several albums is one that threads the needle between specific and abstract. His way of describing landscapes through rapid-fire arpeggios and crisp, evocative melodies. The song Abilene, from Ben's 2014 album Field Studies, was inspired by his experience driving through Kansas for the first time the vast flatness he found disorienting, as though it swallowed everything inside it. In his next album, Salt, Ben flipped his previous process. Instead of writing about his experience inside a landscape, he found landscapes that represented his experience.
1: I I like went through a terrible breakup, and I felt sort of like ungrounded and lost, and uh, like I couldn't depend on the ground beneath me, and uh, so the way that I ultimately dealt with that was I wrote a whole album about places where you actually can't depend on the ground beneath you. The start of the record is about landscapes where the ground shifts like very violently and dramatically and permanently and it's you know, in the moment it feels, you know, awful. But then the songs towards the end are about like places like salt marshes or tidal rivers, which are kind of constantly changing their, these fundamental things about their identity in these, you know, big ways, like the river will change direction.
3: I'm going to switch gears for a minute and talk about lyrics. There are lots of songs about nature. By people like John Denver. Songs that weren't about pollution, like Mercy Mercy Me by Marvin Gaye. Or Big Yellow Taxi by Joni Mitchell. And there are songs about how we use nature from a practical perspective. What all these songs have in common, though, is that they use lyrics to help shape their perspectives on nature for the listener. There's still room for interpretation and ambiguity, of course, but when Dolly Parton sings about sunsets and streams and fields as God's coloring book, you get a pretty good idea what she's talking about. I saw a
1: golden ray of sunlight, a silver drop of deer,
3: a soft white I find the music of instrumental artists, however, like George Winston or Ben Cosgrove, a little more enigmatic. If it weren't for the title of the song and the image on the cover of the album, you wouldn't be able to say what inspired the music. But when you throw in a title that references nature, suddenly it feels like the song is transporting you into the outdoors, that it has no other agenda. Of all Ben Cosgrove's albums, Salt especially feels rooted in nature from the cover art to the song titles to the sounds of waves hidden in the mix. And since college, Ben has leaned into that connection in order to fund his art, taking on residencies at places like the White Mountain National Forest, Acadia, and Isle Royale National Park. And so, in a sort of organic way, Ben's music has over the years come to celebrate the beauty of the wild and the pristine. Which, far from being simple observation, Actually represents a specific environmental ethic
1: for a lot of my music, both in the way it was recorded and in the way I thought about it. I I was writing about places, thinking of myself as sort of like the the like you know like the Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, like invisible eyeball thing.
3: Ah <laughs> um, uh, yes, the transparent eyeball, Mister. Waldo Emerson. If you're not too familiar, was a 19th century transcendentalist who, among other things, found divinity and spirituality in nature, at a time when wilderness had historically been viewed by Europeans and American settlers as a place to be tamed. Its value was in its use, not its beauty. Emerson believed that nature was the closest thing to God. To be immersed within it, especially in solitude, is to witness and become part of the divine. I become a transparent eyeball, he wrote in his book Nature along with an illustration of an eyeball with a hat and very long legs. I am nothing. I see all. The currents of the universal being circulate through me. I am part or parcel of God. Now, there are plenty of historical reasons to learn about or be interested in the ideas of Waldo Emerson. But taking inspiration from them? In retrospect, Ben has decided that's not really his thing. And that's partly because he's recently been taking inspiration from a somewhat more modern piece of writing. I've been
1: recommending this essay to everybody I meet for like 5 or 6 years and it took me <laughs> a very long time to realize that I wasn't really putting my money where my mouth was.
3: That's coming up after a break. It's kind of a breeze, isn't it? It's like <laughs> I, I I like reread it this morning. It's like
2: This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Today, producer Taylor Quimby has been talking about the relationship between music and nature with composer and traveling musician Ben Cosgrove. Before the break, though, the conversation had veered into another subject, environmental ethics. Do you remember uh, the first time that you read The Trouble with Wilderness? Uh,
1: weirdly, I do, and I hadn't thought about it until you asked it. Um, <laughs> If there's, you know, two or three things that have kind of influenced my whatever environmental philosophy I have, it's that's number one among them. I would say. Yeah, and in, in part because it was so, like, I felt like such an idiot for not having thought about it before.
3: Yeah. The Trouble with Wilderness by historian William Cronin is an essay that was first published in 1995. And it's one that's been cited, assigned in classrooms, and debated by critics ever since. There are a few big ideas laid out in the essay, but the gist is pretty straightforward. Just like the the problem with
1: separating our understanding of, or like having this dualistic idea of, you know, like nature is where people aren't and where people are is necessarily not nature, um, is problematic for both of those, both of the places that fall into each one of those categories, um, we kind of compromise the places that we're keeping ourselves out of by fetishizing them and and not really taking them seriously as evolving, changing, dynamic places. And also we sort of get this erroneous moral licensing to mistreat the landscapes that we do inhabit um, because we yeah. can think like, you know, like Northern Alaska is out there. So what do I care about right. this parking lot?
3: Yeah, we protect the pristine but the people who live next to, you know, a, a factory or, you know, a power plant, yeah, that's not really worth paying attention to their environmental conditions because it's already gross or whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah, it really struck me when I first read it because I, I was totally guilty of that through my whole childhood and adolescence. Like, I think I, I mean, I grew up in kind of a suburban New England town, and I kind of thought that, like, you know, like, You know, there's trees and stuff here, but come on, like the real stuff is (laughs) is you've got to go north and west for, for that.
3: I asked Ben if he wouldn't mind reading a couple of passages from the essay. Here's a little bit.
1: There is nothing natural about the concept of wilderness. It is entirely a creation of the culture that holds it dear, a product of the very history it seeks to deny. To the extent that we celebrate wilderness as the measure with which we judge civilization, We reproduce the dualism that sets humanity and nature at opposite poles. We thereby leave ourselves little hope of discovering what an ethical, sustainable, honorable human place in nature might actually
3: look like. That's the best paragraph. It's really good writing. I mean, like... he's, He's good, man. It's crisp. In the essay, Cronin lays out all this in a historical context that outlines how our perceptions of wilderness as represented by places like national parks and vast stretches of uninhabited landscape, were created through religious and colonial ideologies, often at the expense of indigenous people and in rural communities that were violently displaced or oppressed in order to create them. It's pointed out to me that his writing is really excellent. This, this essay is obviously hugely influential. But some of the ideas in there would have been extremely obvious to, like, indigenous people
1: they they themselves being kind of like romanticized and fetishized at the same time they were being the victims of genocide yeah right
3: and so in some ways like it takes a guy like william cronin you know a a very smart white academic yeah
1: white guy from wisconsin to
3: say it in in the way that will cause ripples throughout the environmental movement you know Mm -hmm. chances are there, there there were other people who said something similar before this but it just didn't it didn't break through yeah. These are topics that recently activists and advocates have successfully pushed to the forefront of environmental discourse. You see evidence of it everywhere now. In discussions of icons like John Muir, in the pages of magazines like The Atlantic, which recently published a cover story called Return the National Parks to the Tribes, and in episodes of Outside In, like our recent one on fortress conservation.
0: So what happens when uh National Park gets created, and indigenous people are pushed off that landscape. Um,
3: Frankly, it's hard to overstate the degree to which this essay is foundational to the philosophy of our show. It came out in 1995, like I said, and was required reading for college students by the mid-2000s. Having your mind blown by William Cronin, like Ben, was a rite of passage for white millennial environmental studies majors all over the U.S., You know, occasionally, listeners have emailed to complain about Outside In's tagline, a show about the natural world and how we use it. Why not change it to interact or experience, a neutral word that sounds less capitalistic or exploitative? But the phrasing was intentional. It's an explicit challenge, and you can hear how it springs from Cronin's essay. Here's Ben reading from it again. Most of
1: our most serious environmental problems start right here at home. And if we are to solve those problems, we need an environmental ethic that will tell us as much about using nature as about not using it.
3: But how all this applies to Ben's music, or any music for that matter, is complicated. Ben has been inspired by the natural world, but he's also writing music that's meant to sound good and afford him a living. And like any piece of artwork, what he puts into his songs and what people take out of them can be two different things. I slowly came to realize
1: that people might be taking the wrong message away after hearing me sit on stage and tell stories about like Isle Royal National Park for <laughs> an hour. Um, I wasn't necessarily saying things I didn't believe, but I was you know ignoring uh, most of the landscape by only really focusing on you know the places that didn't have people in them
3: I can imagine how that might factor in as you've written these songs that are about parks or about these places, where like you find yourself telling the same story again and again, and it starts to slowly worm its way into your brain about like, what am I, what am I talking about right now? Yeah, well, that
1: and because it, like, I, I end up telling versions of the same story, you know, every night. It it also has the effect that I I would stop considering them because they were just like, oh yeah, this is the this is like this is the story behind this song.
3: So over the last year, Ben has been working to course-correct his musical interpretation of the natural world. It's a subtle shift, given the instrumental nature of his music, but a powerful one.
1: I tried to write a whole album that was just about places of um, where the kind of built environment and what we'd call the natural environment kind of overlapped and intersect with each other more. Um, And it wound up being a very much more challenging and interesting project than I realized it would be. And it also was sort of the perfect pandemic <laughs> undertaking because I couldn't go anywhere. A lot of these songs are about like, you know, weeds exploding through the sidewalk cracks or um, like highway sports getting overgrown with things or like gardens, which are simultaneously like
3: orderly and, and explosive. The title of the album, borrowed from William Cronin's essay, is The Trouble with Wilderness. And it's not just a break from his style in terms of cover art and song titles. There are spots where, on the record, you can literally hear him breathing in the background. Like in this song, inspired by a wind farm. What I wound up trying to
1: do with the noises on the record is come up with a way to make a piano sound, kind of like mechanical and organic and kind of, like, ethereal all at the same time. What we ended up doing, me and the producer, was recording um, the sort of mechanical guts of the piano very closely. So there's all these microphones on, like, hammers and strings and whippets and whippins rather, and uh, you can hear, like, keys moving and my fingers going.
3: One of my favorite tracks on the new album is inspired by Gardens. The title comes from a letter that Charlotte's web author E.B. White wrote to his wife. To my American gardener with love. Before the seed there comes the thought of bloom. The seedbed is the restless mind itself. Not sun, not soil alone can bring to border. This rush of beauty and this sense of order. Ben told me he doesn't want to give the impression with this album that conservation is inherently bad, or that we shouldn't protect habitat or enjoy time spent in wilderness spaces. And in his essay, Cronin makes a similar plea. Here's Ben reading from the essay again.
1: Indeed, my principal objection to wilderness is that it may teach us to be dismissive or even contemptuous of such humble places and experiences. Without our quite realizing it, wilderness tends to privilege some parts of nature at the expense of others. Most of us, I suspect, still follow the conventions of the romantic sublime in finding the mountaintop more glorious than the plains, the ancient
3: forest nobler than the grasslands, the mighty canyon more inspiring than the humble marsh. So Ben's shift is this, and it's a subtle one. He's turned his gaze away from the mountains, and the canyons, and forests, and yes, the waves, and pointed it towards examples of nature that spring at his very feet. The Trouble with Wilderness doesn't argue for specific environmental policies or describe a more ethical approach to conservation. It's not a guide for how to save the planet, though perhaps such a guide would include something like it. But it can radically shift your perspective. And when the trouble with wilderness does seep in, the world stays exactly the same, but everything looks different. Can I read you one more paragraph from the essay in case Oh, yeah. more
1: stuff that yeah, sure.
3: The yeah, trouble definitely. with wilderness changed the way Ben Cosgrove makes and thinks about his music. But what can it do to a hike, or a podcast, or to a life? What do you lose when your idea of wilderness evaporates? Or maybe the better question is what can you gain?
2: This episode was produced by Taylor Quimby with me, Sam Evans-Brown, Justine Paradise, and Felix Poon. Erica Janik is our executive producer. If you haven't already, you should definitely check out and read The Trouble with Wilderness. It's a pretty quick read, and whether you've read it before or whether it's your first time through it, we'd love to hear what you think about it. We'll link it to the essay in the show notes. Also, what's your favorite song about nature and why? We'll start a couple of threads over in the Outside In Facebook group, so come and be part of the conversation. Most of the music in this episode came from Ben Cosgrove. His new album, The Trouble with Wilderness, comes out on April 23rd. Other music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.